HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We, of course, are coming to you from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Today we are talking about grains. Um, I can keep thinking of the uh, quote, you know, man does not live on bread alone, but we could try, right? That would cover quite a bit, yeah. (laughs) I am joined uh, in the studio um, by my good friend and repeated Farm Report guest, June Russell. June, welcome. Thank you, Erin. Good to be here. So June is a woman of uh, many talents and many hats, many jobs. Uh, she's been working for a number of years as the farm inspector for New York City's green markets and is coming up on 10 years of leading the, the New York uh, City Green Market Grains Project. So she's here today to give us a little bit of an update on the, the current status of that project, the growth, what's happening, what's exciting in the world of grains. And then later this evening, we're excited. We're going to be heading out to uh, MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, for the debut of a new heritage radio show, Modernist Breadcrumbs. Um, Nathan Mirvold and HRN host uh, Michael Harlan Turkle are going to be taking us on a little bit of a journey this fall. So stay tuned in for that, exploring the world of bread, of which obviously grains are a primary ingredient. So Putting in a little plug that that uh, um, new series will be debuting shortly, and we will share some of that on the feed, so hang tight. But today I want to talk about the Northeast, at least starting in the Northeast, um, because this project has exploded nationwide. So June, maybe just for folks who are less familiar uh, with the work, can you give us a little sense of the genesis moment for the Grains Project? Sure. Um, 
There were uh, conversations at Green Market. I I really think this goes back to the Green Market Farmer Consumer Advisory Board. Which is? um, Which is a a board of farmers and consumers that meets once a month to discuss uh, issues and policy at Green Market. Um, So these conversations predated me um, and, and my role anyway. I've been with Green Market since 2004, but moved to my position in 2007. And at that time... Uh, the baker's presence in the market was a big issue where uh, certainly uh, the markets were starting to boom, that real estate had become more valuable, and farmers' resentment towards bakers was really growing, as in they were looking across the aisle and seeing bakers there occupying you know, prime real estate, two and three spaces, selling literally banana bread made from commodity flour. And you know, they, we see farmers every year... Um, it's almost predictable. Somebody suffers a great loss and has to absorb that as part of farming and working with nature. And it's just something that uh, as much as our, our, we love our bakers in the market, they just are not faced with. Uh, it's, it's not quite the same. And that's because, I mean, too, just to also to be clear that one of the things that makes New York City green markets so special is that to be at the market, you have to be a producer of the things that you're selling. I mean, that's essentially part of the enforcement role that you play as a farm inspector. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're considered uh, the largest farmer or producer-only marketplace, and uh, you do have to be raising, growing, baking, catching, whatever it is you're selling at the market. And the very few exceptions are our bakers. Uh, and then we have two pickles and preserves. It's another small category, but there are only... Uh, maybe two in two to three. I think we have three now in that category that mm-hmm. also do not farm, but everybody else is. And that's those numbers are actually less than 10 percent of our our population, which is different than most markets in this country, too. Oh, yeah. Especially yeah. I think of the other kind of kind of flagship market in the U.S., the uh, ferry market over in San Francisco. You go there, you can get tacos and, you know, <laughs> and then figs and then tomatoes and uh, all, all different kinds of things, some that are producer-grown, some that are just thankfully delicious. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that's the thing that's really important to note and, and is part of the mission of Grown YC and the mission of Green Market is really looking at this place-based work. So you're at this meeting. There's a little bit of grumbling. People are like, why are they selling banana bread? It's it, like basically it's kind of like it's not fair. Yeah. It's definitely not fair. And we realized as, you know, at that point, we were new management. That was myself and Michael Hurwitz and, and Marcel Van Ooyen, um maybe the year before. But, you know, realizing it's our job to manage that space on behalf of the mission. And over the years, I've recognized how valuable that space is. And I, and I consider it the most important thing we do is, is almost defend it from uh, encroachment. And you know, people have wonderful, brilliant ideas that just don't fit our model. And, you know, thankfully, there are other markets where they can sell their products. And certainly, you know, New Amsterdam market was a big loss. And that used to be a place that we could send people and wonderful producers, but they just didn't fit our model. Fit the model. And I think yep. when we're talking about that real estate, green uh, market, in partnership with the city, basically gets to set up a temporary business space in in prime real estate spots across the city. Oh, it's yeah. not something that just any I can't go and set up my stand 
in the middle of Union Square and be like, hey, I got some good stuff. Exactly. <laughs> we, we, we are a preferred tenant, and it is one of the main things we do is negotiate those contracts and, and that space. And, you know, for a long time, I, I would say that the most important thing we do at Green Market is make sure that farmers have parking. Um, and I, I think that that's true, that um, defending that turf, so to speak, where producers can set up, we do not interfere with prices or price setting or... Um, at that point, it's up to the producer to develop their customer base and those relationships. Um, but having the opportunity to do that um, and and the mission that we have makes us a preferred tenant. And again, it's like, so it's everything comes back to our mission and it's really is a guiding uh, a document, so to speak, like that, that helps us make decisions and, and sort of keep us at true north. Yeah, so then here you are in this moment where you have these bakers and also, you know, customers of the market who are at this meeting as well who are like oh well it's important to have baked goods but there's a impetus for change so how did like how did you guys kind of decide on on what made sense for like a transition period and and give us a little bit of sense of like how that has evolved over the last decade sure so you know it really I, I literally was tasked with do something about bakers. <laughs> you're like, okay, okay. <laughs> we have a mission, yeah. and then this is your job. Bunch of <laughs> farmers. <laughs> and uh, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? So, um, you know, starting with the rules and what was already on the books, and, and there was a rule about local flour um, that was I would just describe as charming. Um, <laughs> it was it was well intentioned, but not really based in the realities of production or. Um, what was happening in the scape of, of grains, literally. Um, so it started with a question. And my question was, is there such a thing as local flour? Is that even feasible? And of course, started that conversation with Don Lewis, who at that time was uh, the sole baker using uh, local grains and local flour. And he was working mm-hmm. with a farmer named Alton Earnhardt, um, who is managing a lot of organic acres for feed grains in Dutchess County. And he was growing a small amount to uh, play with and feed his family. And he met Don and said, here, you're a baker, do something with this or not use it. And over the years, Don has become uh, an incredible force and advocate for local grains and has developed Wild Hive into a mill and is supplying uh, some great flour to places like Italy. Um, and... You know, so they were the first stop, and um, even though at that time it was it was relatively small scale, and Don was just producing for his own bakery, um, but then the question still lingered. It's like, okay, well, what else is happening? And so, uh, with my job, I doing inspections, I travel within the Green Market region, which is big. Yeah, um, covers New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, New York up to the Finger Lakes, uh, parts of Vermont, Connecticut, Massachusetts. So in the course of my travels, it took about two years to identify other allies slash collaborators. Um, so among those first people that I met uh, were Jack Laser from Butterworks Farm in, in Vermont, uh, Ellie Ragosa, who has the heritage uh, Grain Conservancy, uh, Klaus and Mary Hall Martins at Lakeview Organic, uh, Elizabeth Dick at Ogren. So by the end of 2008, going into 2009, this was starting to sort of coalesce a little bit. Like, oh, there are there are some things happening. There's some potential. There's 
Um, and I want to just jump in here and point out how special it is that you um, started with assessing the landscape versus just enacting a policy. And I think that like um, it's a thing I find when people are looking to make make changes in uh, their procurement or who's showing up. They're like, oh, you know, people seem to want this. So great. This is the policy without really having any sense of like how long that transi- transition process might take or if there are producers who can meet those criteria. Because um, I think one of the ways you could have done it is just say like, OK, bakers, you have to use all local flour. And then well, that was the rule that was on the books, yeah. and, and it wasn't working. Right. Um, or even realistic. Yeah, <laughs> and not realistic. Oh, my God. Little did we know. Um, yes. So it was kind of recalibrating to what could even be feasible. So um, by 2009, we were able to craft some new rules and set that bar at 15%. So here you have a rule at 100% that's not working, and then 15%. We still didn't know if it was going to work. It's right. kind of like, you know, throwing the dart at the wall to see what happens. Sure. Um, but you got to start and put an incentive out there. And the good thing is, is like during that time, I was holding annual meetings with our bakers and engaging people in the conversation. And they were up to speed to a certain extent because of those previous conversations. Mm-hmm. And then they realized, you know, oh, this might actually happen and we might actually have to do this. Right. And so they start participating in, in creating that demand and reaching out to their distributors and reaching out to producers. And, you know, a distributor can ignore one or two requests, but if they start getting five, six, ten, they're like, oh, hey, what is this little yeah. flower thing about? Yeah, I better, I better go find some yeah. of this. And I think, too, a flower is such an interesting ingredient because the assumption is that it's just kind of inert. Like, you know, flour oh, yeah. is is this kind of base ingredient that doesn't really impart much kind of, you know, it's like a, a flour is a flour is a flour. You go to the store and you're like, oh, I get the King Arthur, I get the Blue Label, I get whatever it is. Like, how different is it really going to be, basically? I like this packaging. But I think that is another kind of interesting thing that I've been learning through you uh, following this project. But I wonder how that was for your bakers when all of a sudden they're bringing different flowers into their production. Um, I think there was like some discovery of a flower is flower is not flower. We are still deep in that discovery, <laughs> I would say. Uh, yeah, man, it's definitely been a journey. Um, I would say well, there was an awful lot of pushback, I think, from we have a we have a range of bakeries, types of bakers, uh, skill levels, um, you know, when I was initially assigned this task, I was kind of disappointed. I was like, well, who cares? Like, we have green market bakers make cider donuts and muffins. It's like a grandma's bake sale, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that's, there. we have farm bakeries, not to dismiss, they have delicious bakers, but um, that versus the skill level of a Dan leader at Bread Alone or uh, the guys at Rock Hill Bakery and Rock Hill Bakehouse. Um, who were part of that second wave, I would call it the second wave of the bread revolution that happened in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both in the beginnings of that, actually, that really brought hearth breads, you know, to the United States. Um, and there was a lot of um, pushback 
that this wouldn't work, that we could try this, but it would ultimately fail because um, we couldn't produce high quality bread flour. Um, the weather would be unpredictable and it would affect that, the quality and the price point would be too high and the customer would never pay for it. Um, and a lot of, a lot of those uh, reasons to push back against this, this notion. So, you know, I think initially, and we're still working through this, is, you know, after 10 years, this is still the groundwork, I feel like, yeah. is being laid in a lot of ways because we have been so disconnected from that primary ingredients and those base characteristics that go with it, the protein content, the gluten structure. Um, but I think, you know, what was amazing is... Um, when we did change the 15%, people hit those numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, we also broadened the conversation to not just fixate on hard wheat, flour, uh, spring wheat for breads. So that It's like, let's look at our region. What can farmers produce here? We can grow rye. We can grow barley. We can grow oats. We can grow corn with buckwheat. There's a whole list of things that you could use. Beans. We put beans in the mix to say you could hit your 15% if you use beans for anything. We do have a baker that makes empanadas with a bean filling. Um, so to broaden that conversation helped. And people, we also put a lot of flexibility into the rules so that people could figure out their own commitments right. and what that would look like and what would work with their products. Um, and people figured it out. It was kind of amazing. Like It's I, also nice when you're not being quite so declarative to say, do this, this way. Yeah. Like all kinds of stuff that maybe you would not have imagined emerge. And I know, I feel like one of those things that was a surprise at the beginning and like I think totally belated glimpse of the obvious now was the role that beverages played in the grain conversation. Oh, man. That came around. That was literally a godsend. That was perfect timing um, in a lot of ways. You know, we were certainly starting to get some liftoff and a lot of farmers were interested uh, in jumping into this space. Um, you know, you can't control expectations. Some folks were disappointed that they're like, I grew all this grain and now I can't sell it. Um, so much development still needed to happen. So for the craft beverage community to, to come along and that really hit about 2012 or so, mm -hmm. There became another market for grain growers to sell into, and it, in many ways, is now surpassed even the baking market. Um, the, the demand is so high, um, but that was really uh, saved a lot of this project because of because of that, where you had uh, hitting those 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 quality parameters for something like uh, a bread wheat flour is very challenging and you don't have control of all of those factors. You know, the weather can rain during harvest and you're gonna have sprouting and that's it. It's not good for baking. So having the secondary markets has been essential that have value to them, right? you know, so it doesn't just go to animal feed. Right. So, um, yeah. Thinking about like kind of the diversity here kind of across, across the board with this story where you're coming into the conversation, uh, assessing kind of who's out there, making rules that are are kind of common sense and allow people a lot of pathways to success. And you're looking at things really from three different points of view, right? What are kind of consumers going to like respond to? What education do they need? What kind of price points work for them? 
the kind of bakers or brewers or distillers, like what do what are they looking to buy and how do they tell that story? And then the farmers wanting to experiment, trusting that there's going to be a market, knowing that if things go wrong, they might go from market A to market B to market C. Um, and, you know, this 10-year landscape really starts to, you know, make sense when you think about also just like the growing season, like the way that you're able to experiment with different varieties or different growing techniques or, uh, you know, you have to go, go through a season, right? So there's oh, yeah. like, there's not a lot of ways, or maybe there is that to like speed up that kind of experimentation process with the raw ingredients. Cause you kind of got to, you know, you got to grow it. Yeah. That's egg. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> I mean, and there's two crops that go in, but they're, they're very different. So yes, there's a winter planting and spring planting, but you kind of get one shot a year and, um, you know, the seasoned farmers know that it's still been a giant learning curve. I talk about Ken Miglarelli, who's a vegetable grower at Green Market, who um, started growing grains. I think it took him four seasons before he had a saleable crop. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now growing barley for a brewery that he started with uh, Jake Sorrell on their farm. Um, so he's, you know, he's certainly come along and he's embraced it and and he's learned quite a bit but um there's so you know it's it's been pretty astonishing to realize like how much of that system was dismantled and we didn't have anything anything to, yeah yeah well i want to talk Close a little bit <laughs> i want to talk a little bit more about that and then kind of jump forward to um kind of what we're seeing now in 2017 but We do uh, need to take a short break to hear a word from our wonderful sponsors, Hearst Ranch. So hang tight. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm in studio with June Russell of uh, New York City's Green Markets, and we will be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Okay, we are back uh, talking all things grains, getting a little bit of a recap of the work of uh, June and many folks from uh, New York City's green market, uh, farmers, thinkers, um, advocates uh, across the state. So one of the things we touched on just before the break was the dismantling of kind of bread and grain production in the Northeast. So aside from farmers having the seed stock and the the know-how to grow these grains, what are some of the other infrastructure pieces 
that are really critical to having a thriving grain economy? Well, um, there are many pieces. Um, Certainly, starting with on farm, uh, a lot of farmers gave up their combines, and if they had them, a lot of that was developed. Or the last ones we've seen, I guess, were are coming out of old barns or from the 1940s and 1950s. But a lot of the first wave of lo that loss was after the Erie Canal opened in 1825, and then um, a lot of oats and um, barley and some rye were still being grown to feed horses up until. Uh, automobiles took over transportation in the beginning part of the 20th century. So, um, you know, you look at like the, then the major production was out west. So what was happening in the northeast was there weren't there was no longer need for these crops, and um, so nobody built new storage capacity on farms, uh, having the harvesting equipment. Uh, having grain dryers as well, a lot of time, like moisture content is is absolutely critical. Um, and then those are the basics just to be able to harvest and store the crop. And mm -hmm. then if it's going to go to a market, if it's going to go to a food grade market, then there's cleaning, secondary cleaning that needs to happen. So some kind of processing um, and some capacity where it can clean to get, get clean to get bagged and then certainly milled. Um, and certain around that time as well, the whole industry had shifted to roller milling and was really being concentrated in the larger areas, you know, Buffalo, Rochester. So, you know, I think that there were maybe some small stone mills that continued to operate on a, on a small scale that finally closed uh, at some point. Um, you know, the landscape is certainly riddled with old mill roads and mill ponds and <laughs> yeah i guess you like take take a drive uh outside the city very quickly into the like mill mill i'm using air quotes here mill land <laughs> yeah. and then on the brewing side the infrastructure is an issue as well yes much more so than distilling so part of how, why distilling took off is several reasons one is that there is no secondary process that needs to happen and then also um some of the the fungus that can impact grains does not survive the distilling process. So we're very susceptible to rain and moisture here in the Northeast, and, and that creates really good conditions for uh, nasty molds that you cannot serve as food grade, but can go into distilling. So with malting, very similar to food grade, you have to have a living grain for that mm -hmm. malting process because it's gonna, the grain is going to be sprouted um, and then that process is stopped and it gets dried down. And that's where the art of the maltster comes in. My favorite term of the last 10 years. <laughs> the maltster. Bringing back the maltster. <laughs> um, and uh, that's where their art comes in, in terms of the roasting, toasting, that's going to impart flavor. In addition to whatever flavors the grains have, which we discovered they do have. Um, but that has been a critical uh, processing component that has... Um, sort of held the beer sector back in some ways. Um, it's coming along. But it's coming along. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that I think is also cool is that, you know, this kind of uh, grain conversation it ha that I think in a lot of ways has really blossomed in the Northeast, there's a lot happening um, and collaboration that you've been a part of across the country. Washington, you know, Michigan, California, North Carolina. Can you talk a little bit about how these kind of communities of grain, grain geeks 
Like, how did you guys like find each other? And like, what is like, what's it like when a bunch of great grain enthusiasts get together? What's the vibe? What do you get? (laughs) Oh man, it's pretty wonky, as you might suspect. I guess Um, I people. There's a few key conferences that happen now every year. Um, Say the Needing Conference in the Northeast is is critical, and and then the. the Cascadia Grain Conference in Washington mm-hmm. and uh, Steve Jones project out at the um, Bread Lab in Washington State University is a big center at this point, and they've developed quite a bit in the last five years. Um, and there's now conferences and meetings happening across the country. Last year I was in Michigan for the Hops and Barley um, conference there and presented on our work uh, at Green Market. Um and so, you know, people come out and meet each other that way. Um, there was a, a meeting last year that a couple of people had pulled together um, from, I'm blanking on the name, but it's um, it was a meeting out in California and they pulled together people from across the country, which was really a thrill because yeah. it's like folks I've been reading about and following and um, from like Arizona <laughs> and North Carolina. I'm just imagining the like, you're like, Great, you're grain heroes, and yeah. you like see them. You're like, there they are. <laughs> yep. It's about like that. So, um, you know, in a lot of ways, this uh, what I think is so interesting about this work, um, and what I have like really loved about, you know, having so many conversations with you about this over the years is really the community development piece of this and that ultimately a lot of I think the the role that you play is one of like convener and connector and like holder of information where because in your in your role as farm inspector you are able to kind of travel around and see what what's going on in different parts like how important it is to have folks kind of at those crux positions who can one have a deep knowledge and understanding for the field but also you know, you're like seeing the holes, you're seeing where like one person could connect or learn from another person. And that is that type of community development work is, is really fascinating to me. And I wonder like, is that just something that is been instinctual for you? Or do you have like, like, how did you know how to do that? Well, I think part of that comes with being a Midwesterner. (laughs) Where, you know, <laughs> pull up in the driveway and honk the horn and see if somebody wants to talk and come out. Um, but to a certain extent, that's true. It's like I show up. I just show up and I knock on the door or walk in the door and, you know, find somebody and start asking questions. And, and those interactions are, are really crucial, those, those check-ins. And, um, you know, having that capacity through doing inspections, I think, is is very unique. You know, I, when I look back, it's like, this would never happen today. Like, this just wouldn't. It was a unique moment right. in the development of the organization and the development of even the local foods movement. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, – and, and I'm endlessly curious and want to know – how things work and, right. and what's happening and, and certainly get to meet a whole cast of characters that are, that are pretty fascinating. But, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, somebody asked me once, you know, well, what do you, what do you actually do? And I said, I actually don't do that much. I have a lot of conversations. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's know, really the role. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not farming. I'm not milling. 
I'm not even baking. Anymore. <laughs> so, um, it's a lot of, and yeah, and sharing information, you know, yeah, sharing ideas like, oh yeah, well, you know, I just saw this person and uh, they're up to this and maybe something you want to think about. And, yeah. 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 Well, I wonder too, I like, I do want to ask you a little bit about uh, kind of gender in this role, both as farm inspector looking at, and then also I think in the, in the bread world, when I think about, you know, the people who have been kind of lifted up uh, as, as bakers, it's a lot of like male names. And, and I'm wondering how you've seen that work kind of show up um, and, and how that maybe, uh, you know, there is, I think, some historical underpinning to that, as well as kind of like what we're seeing today. I mean, that I'm throwing you, I'm throwing you a broad question, so take it in whatever direction feels right. Um, okay, well, uh, yeah, that's true. There's, uh, I think it's part of our culture right now, and um, certainly in agriculture and the way that it connects to uh, the food culture right now. Uh, there's a lot of celebrity. So things tend to go to those bigger names mm-hmm. and celebrity names. Um, also speaking broadly, I would say that a lot of the groundwork is done by women. A lot of the not-for-profit, uh, the institutions, universities, a lot of unsung heroes, certainly, that have been working on some of these aspects for many years. Um, and... We don't see their names on a daily basis. Like right. sometimes you do, but uh, you know Heather Darby, Elizabeth Dick, Ellen Mallory, Ellie Ragosa, um, Monica Spiller, who's out in California, who has, has been getting more attention as, as being a real founder leader. Yeah, uh, and and saving some of the heritage varieties and getting them out there. Um, yeah, there's. Um, it's definitely been an interesting thing to watch, and, and and sometimes I think, you know, given that it is part of our culture, it's something to accept. The the thing that I can get, I'll admit, uh, resentful about is the resources, though. Is that then there's a lot of these organizations, including our own, I'll give a pitch for my own project, that need continued funding. Right. So when you see a lot of resources going to people who don't really need any more resources, like that's very frustrating. Right. You're like thinking about uh, where as a funder you're going to make impact uh, versus kind of like the kind of the sex appeal. I think that that celebrity stuff is is real. And and again, it's like not to be necessarily against that. I think there's room for a lot of people to be absolutely, you know, making space um, and making a name for themselves in this space. But I do find it's like one of those things where I'm like, why is it like why this? I mean, this person's a great chef, but like, they're not the person like, yeah. come on. And, like. there, and there's, you know, three dozen others yeah. who are getting no press. Yeah. Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, uh, making grain sexy again. Um, you're, this work has also kind of come of age. <laughs> Cracky, you know? <laughs> um, you know, this, this work, this grain work has also really, um, blossomed under the shadow of the kind of gluten paranoia and the gluten reality that's been facing our country. And I'm sure that's a big thing that consumers are asking you for and wanting to talk about and wanting to understand. And, as far as I know, like 
there's probably a little bit more unknown than known at this point about there's a lot unknown yeah and there's no there's no research um I think that would be the game changer at this point. And where is that research going to come from and who will pay for it? It's certainly not something I don't think the industry is necessarily excited about. Um, But, yeah, from the beginning, I was talking about this the other day, and one of the first uh, grain tastings that we did, the very first question I got was, do you have something gluten-free? And I was so annoyed. And and then the question kept coming up and kept coming up. And then... um, you know, at some point I realized, like, okay, they have to take people at their word. And, you know, many years later, <clears throat> it's hard to talk about. I have my <laughs> own gluten intolerance I'm dealing with. But the, there, there is a reality that uh, autoimmune conditions are on the rise. There, yeah. Something is happening. Um, there are several theories as to why and trying to pinpoint what is causing those allergies. But really, it's a, it's a very complex web when it comes down to it because our immune systems are complex, our food system is complex, our environment is complex. And we're being assaulted in all these different ways mm-hmm. from you know the water, the air, the electromagnetic frequencies at this point with our computers and cell phones and stress and that, and a denatured food supply. Um, so when you add all that up, it, it is not surprising to me that we're seeing a lot of allergies and autoimmune conditions. Um, and then people have to do their own testing to see what works for them. Yeah, I feel like and that's a thing that you said to me once that I really, that really landed and I really stick with. You, you know, you said, you know, I just never want to be in the position where I'm discounting someone's personal experience. Yeah. So I think like... One of the things that can happen, especially for people working in food services, you start to get this kind of like annoyance towards people who are like, oh, I like I'm allergic to this or I'm intolerant to this or I can't eat that. And and as a, maybe you're a service provider, uh, you know, a waiter, a waitress, uh, someone working at market stand and it can feel like a little fatiguing and you want to like put yourself in the role of like being able to diagnose or even out with your friends you're like oh come on Susie you and your fucking shit like it's always you know like if it's not one thing it's another uh, but but to take a step back and just be like wow that's really not my it's not my role and like it's not my job to like be the policeman or woman of yeah. like what you're what you're eating um, but I can imagine like the frustration when you're working so hard in these areas to like ha- to like you know, that becomes part of the conversation that you just have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And it also makes me, I mean, I've, I think people have gotten much more tolerant. My experiences going mm-hmm. out to restaurants and people are more patient and, yeah. and accommodating. And it is certainly, you know, a few places that I can go out and feel taken care of. Yeah. Just super special um, and worthwhile, you know, because I think then I'm a big fan of home cooking big fan of our market shoppers, you know, and how people choose to feed themselves. You know, it, it reminds me of seeing this woman at the market one day, and she was probably like not even five feet, you know, tiny. And she was buying a whole 25-pound bag of uh, farmer ground whole wheat flour. 
And I was like, what are you doing with that? <laughs> and she said she was like allergic to so many things, but she could eat this. And she's like, if I, when you find something you can eat, like, yeah. it becomes like really so essential. Yeah. And she was just doing flatbreads, like unyeasted. You know, very like the simple, simplest thing she could do. Yeah. But 25 pounds at a time. You yeah. Know? I was like, that is amazing. You're like, you're literally buying flour that's like a quarter of your body exactly. weight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we are just about out of time. But one of the other things that I think um, is is a potentially a, a critique or a misunderstanding of this space is uh, and something that the green markets, I think it also thrown in their face a lot. is like, oh, this is for like rich white people. Um, that, that like the, the, the markets are expensive or like fancy grains are for fancy people. And, um, I think it's really interesting, um, where you're seeing some of the biggest adoption and purchasing of these grains. And maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. We've been operating the grain stand at market now for three years. I think we started a pilot. Yeah. 20 fall of 2014. And it's been incredible. It's it's capturing that retail market, first of all, has been really essential. And then as we look at our numbers and market performance, we've been experimenting doing pop-up markets. And uh, this fall, we have a, a stand that we're hosting uh, craft beverage producers with as well. Um, you can look at our website for that schedule. Um, but, you know, looking at those numbers and realizing that our strongest performing market is Inwood, which is up in Fort Washington, and it beats our Union Square Wednesday, which is our next best market, by 30%. Wow. And within that, 30% of the business at Union Square is to uh, like restaurants and, and chefs and uh, bakers. So, you know, then that, that puts it even farther ahead. Every single sale is to an individual consumer who's going to go home and cook with that. And I'm going to be up there this weekend on Saturday with Henry um, to check it out myself because I really want to know, like, what are people doing with these grains yeah. and what's happening up there? But, you know, you see a market where there's really a dedication to home cooking and people view the market as their food source, um, their primary food source. Mm-hmm. I always get very frustrated when people say support your farmer's market. I'm like, this is not charity. Yeah. This is a food system. Yeah. This is a living, breathing food system. And, and to me, it's it's the best quality. I also get very annoyed with that, you know, charge of elitism. It's like, this is a priority. You know, I ate like this when I had no money. And um, not like I have tons of money now, but... Um, <laughs> It's it's really about priorities, and you can see that in uh, some of our markets, you know, especially where there are recent immigrant communities that uh, come from places where they're still more connected to the source of their food, and they know what it should taste like, and they know that, you know, things coming off of the larger system lack flavor and lack freshness and lack nutrition. So to me, it's a matter of, of valuing that and where are you going to put your money? I certainly don't buy other things because... Even with as much access as I have, because I'm in the markets constantly, mm-hmm. it's where I spend most of my money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, uh, I can't imagine, you know, we, we could go, we don't have a whole nother conversation about that and things you already know that, you know, our, our food system is, it's not that this food is too expensive, it's that our, our food system is too cheap. Yeah. And it's exploitative and extractive and, you know. To me, the the foods at the market are living and worth their value because the people who are growing and raising them can make a living and raise the next generation of farmers, which we're going to need. 
All right. Well, I don't, I think that about sums it up. June, thank you so much, <laughs> as you. always, for uh, your insights, for your work. Uh, I'm really excited to, to see things kind of blossom and grow and continue. We'll continue to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Erin. All right, guys, that uh, is a wrap. You've made it to the end of another episode of The Farm Report. Stay tuned. Uh, like I said, I will be sharing the, the new um, Modernist Breadcrumbs podcast. will come out on the feed um, probably sometime next week. Um, some more great grain talk uh, brought to you by the Heritage Radio Network, sponsored by um, Bob's Red Mill, who's been underwriting a lot of the content here on the network. Uh, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. All of our funding, everything that we have that makes the station work comes from our wonderful sponsors and from individuals like you out there listening. Yes, I am talking to you. Um, so if you believe in our work um, and want to show a little love, show a little support, visit the website, click on that beating heart and toss a couple of bucks our way. Uh, you can follow the work of all the amazing Heritage Radio Network hosts um, on Instagram or Twitter. It's Heritage underscore radio. I am Aaron underscore Fairbanks. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.